Hello and welcome to episode 377 of the fabulous Pelton cast presented by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you in different locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion Storm. I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks, who have played a game of some kind. They they did play a game of some kind. Uh, it's the Vladimir Rudmanovich episode oh, of the pod. I'm sure the listener, Damon, wow. would be would be disappointed if we didn't mention make mention of that. I was thinking at seven. That is a legendary 77. Yes, uh, and very unusual at this stage that we we have a basketball player uh, come up in the jersey numbers. In in like he's a distant patron saint, but Vladi's a patron saint in the Pelton cast in some way. <laughs> I suppose he certainly is. This is Peja Drovniak, although uh, I I I misanswered with Peja Drovniak in Immaculate Grid earlier because I remembered him getting being involved in the Charlotte expansion draft, but he did not actually play for the charlotte team at that time the bobcats yay though i might have a chris wilcox bobblehead over my uh, right shoulder vladi rodmanovich still has a special place in our hearts of course vladi rodmanovich traded for chris wilcox to the la clippers once upon a time that's why i brought him up yes just the listener may not remember that necessarily if you're listening to this podcast i feel like that information is common knowledge (laughs) Uh, probably all right, the, uh, the, the relative merits uh, of I, Iowa State's education program might not be college oh, people know, hosting no. or not everybody listening to this podcast, but definitely not the host. Who Vladimir Rodmanovich was traded for? That is common knowledge. Yes, that's probably the case. Uh, our search for Seattle's best IPA takes us this week back to Tumwater, Washington. I, wow. Did we did we previously do the other Tumwater location? I'm not sure if we did uh, as part of this search. But a, I've a never wanted to go to Tumwater twice before. With which I was not familiar. Triceratops Brewing I in was Tumwater. It sounds like the name of a beer. Triceratops? It sounds like, I thought it was the name of the actual beer itself. If and it I was, was very confused. Triceratops? I mean... That makes a lot of sense. Just the, it's it sounds like a type of beer rather than a brewery triceratops, in my opinion. I'll I'll pass that feedback along to them. Uh, it is. Their, I'm not saying this is not an insult. I know. I'm just noting uh, that I read that and I assumed that it was it was a type of beer was the triceratops look triceratops liquid swords, as if the, it was all one name rather than the brewery. liquid sword swords. Here is is merely the name. Uh, with the Wu-Tang reference uh, IPA, uh, we launched our popular rotating IPA series back in 2016, and by drawing on the wide variety of expressive hop varieties available to brewers, we haven't made the same beer since. Hazier, bright, fruitier, piney, no two chambers are alike, and they never last long. So I, it appears this one, again, I, I did not realize this until looking at the website, is not technically qualified for Seattle's best IPA. Is it, say, is it is a rotating and not a full-time IPA from Triceratops? Do you know who founded Tumwater, Washington? I, I haven't the slightest clue who founded Tumwater, no. George Bush, the black pioneer of Tumwater. Wow. Fo- founder of the city in the 1800s. You love to see it. Absolutely. Uh, 
Well, as Tristan mentioned, the NFL we, preseason. We don't, we don't know the founder of Tumwater, Washington, but we definitely do know who Vladimir Rodmanovich was trading oh, for. That's, that's a good point. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's the kind of information we know on this podcast. Uh, as Tristan mentioned, the NFL preseason is underway. So uh, time to bring back Pelton Cast Fantasy Football. If you're interested in participating again, please email us, peltoncast at gmail.com. And uh, if you were part of the leagues last year, we'll be sending out a reminder email to everyone there so you can uh, get back to us that way. But uh, looking forward to it and need to figure out what projections I'm going to use because Kubiak is not on the market anymore. Wow. It's not available anywhere? Uh, Not that I, as far as I can tell. Are you kidding me? This is like one of the most successful fantasy football products. It is. This was like for that brief second when Red Zone wasn't on Comcast. I mean, maybe there has been an update since I last checked, but uh, with the Aaron Schatz move away from footballoutsiders.com, the site that he founded, uh, I, I have not seen Kubiak available for purchase. Still an almanac, but no Kubiak. Wow. So you've actually done quite well in Pelton Cast fantasy football. You've never won, correct? But you've done quite well. I am the, I don't know if I'm quite the Buffalo Bills, but... Uh, I guess I'm the pre-Kawhi Toronto Raptors. Very strong in the regular season. Not, not so good in the playoffs. You've made the or playoffs the, Or the Billy Bean Oakland A's. What is going to happen to you post-Kubiak? There, there was a year where I put together my own projections previously. And I really? think my performance was more or less the same. Okay. Because I was going to say, you're like Biff with the Almanac with those Kubiak projections. <laughs> uh, although it was 2020, so I had a lot more free time on my hands to come up with <laughs> projections back then. You made your own projections? I did. How did you do that? I mean, I guess it makes sense if anybody was going to make their own projections. That is not something that I would be doing. Uh, can you remind me, am I in the Champions League this year? I believe you are Okay. on your own merits. Oh, wow. Even better. As opposed to... I think last by year virtue I of make it, make it on my own merits. That is that is correct. You, you absolutely 100% did not make it on your own merits back then. Okay, but this year I actually earned it. Uh, I I believe both of my did both of my teams make it again. I don't wow, know. maybe I, did I make it by default again? I don't think you made it by default. I I have to now go reactivate the league on the air here. Wow! Uh, in the Champions League, Trader Mina finished in third place, lost in the lost in the semifinals. That's you. That is that is correct. Uh, in the Pelton Cast, home of the Super Bowl Forty Eight champions. Let's see here. I lost in the final and finished second. Nice. Okay. So you have two slots in in the Champions League. Correct. So we okay. will have to figure out who takes one of those two spots in the Champions League. And in the talking the uh Pelton Cast four time WNBA Champions Leagues, you as talking taco time finished third. Okay. Well, I can tell you who not to invite with that extra slot that we have, which is Babyist Fantasy Genius, who I thought would love to do a fantasy mock draft. I pulled one up on Saturday. I was like, we're going to draft this player. We drafted, I don't even remember, uh, like Jamar Chase or something. Two picks in, he was like, this is fucking bullshit. <laughs> that was his response about fantasy football. Because, because he, he didn't get all taking, the players he wanted? He wanted all the players. He just wanted to go through and draft whoever he wanted. And I was like, you have to compete with other people. You can't just pick the players. I was thinking about an alternative fantasy format. 
Which, if it's more like DFS, except like over the course of the season, you can pick each player one time. So you have to figure out when is you're going to be your Patrick Mahomes week, for example. So it's like an eliminator pool. Exactly, but with fantasy players. I feel like that would be an interesting way to do things. I mean, that probably exists somewhere, I would say. Probably. I, but but baby is fantasy genius is the exact opposite as of me playing fantasy football because when we were kids I used to see those things where it have all of the best players and it would be like here's how much you should pay for each player or whatever and I was like this is absurd why is there not a strict salary cap where the most valuable players are the players who aren't actually that good it's just Rob Nen this is of course a reference to the homemade homebrew <laughs> fantasy baseball league that we played with uh, our best friend and our cousin back in the 1990s i would literally look at it and i'd be like it's so easy all you do is pick the best players that's the easiest thing you could possibly do why are you not having a mid-season draft and fighting over fernando tati senior we hideki irabu i remember as being quite a coveted player when he came in as a rookie that that was all was that also mid-season i think that was um yeah it it turned out that we were ahead of the curve on like it's not exactly service time manipulation but trying to take advantage of the cheap contracts part of players career as opposed to the stars in their prime career All right, well, unfortunately this week, uh, instead of toasts, we begin with some somber news as we're remembering former Seahawks running back Alex Collins, who died in a motorcycle accident on Sunday night at age 28 in his native Florida. Uh, Collins was drafted by the Seahawks in the fifth round of the 2016 draft and had two stints with the team. After limited action as a rookie, he was released in 2017 and landed in Baltimore, where he emerged as a starter, ran for nearly 1,000 yards that season. Collins subsequently spent 2019 out of the NFL before returning with the Seahawks in 2020, playing 11 games in 2021 when he finished as the team's second leading rusher with 411 yards. That was his final NFL action. Uh, John Snyder had a statement as part of the, the team's announcement of this news. The, the Seahawks family, along with the 12s, are so saddened to hear of Alex's passing. Alex's infectious smile, classic river dance skills will forever be missed. Alex would light up a room and was beloved by our entire building. He enjoyed life and attacked it on the football field. On uh, Tuesday, speaking to the media, Pete Carroll called it a heart-crushing loss. And, you know, we certainly heard from a number of players. I mean, that's, you know, besides Colin's age, what made this, you know, particularly touching was the fact that he had played with so many current members of the Seahawks just two seasons ago being part of the team. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, I mean, shocking news that we got. And I think the main thing that my takeaway from it was, you know, I hope that this moment is a reminder of how we as fans are having these conversations about players and athletes and really just recognizing that these are human beings. Obviously, like the game is primarily played for entertainment purposes or whatever. But just thinking about some of the glib nature that fans can have in particular when they get heated with rivalries or whatever the competitive aspects of it but most importantly at its core like these athletes who are playing the game they're they're human beings with families and lives and the you know i think the number one thing to think about is them as people uh, and this moment is definitely a reminder of that that it's about more than just football or sports in general uh 
it's about a community and people who are impacting lives and who have impacted other people's lives throughout the sport. Absolutely. I mean, it shouldn't take a moment like this to remind us of that, but uh, it's certainly is an opportunity to acknowledge that and be thoughtful about it in in terms of how we talk about and and think about players and the athletes that we watch and cover. Uh, You know, for the reasons that I kind of just went into, it it didn't get as much attention, but another former Seahawk passed away in the past week. Uh, Wide receiver Sean Dawkins died last week at age 52 after suffering cardiac arrest. Uh, Dawkins spent two seasons with the Seahawks as part of his nine-year NFL career, recording career highs of 992 yards, seven touchdowns in 1999 as part of that Seahawks team that broke an 11-year playoff drought. Uh, I feel like Sean Dawkins, to to me, he was kind of the the start of, I, there were truly receivers before this that qualified, but in my, my Mike Pritchard might've been before this, I guess too, but like the lineage of receivers who are just like, always open, highly productive, you know, not necessarily the the most talented receivers, but, you know, Bobby Ingram, Joe Juravicious, I think of as being in this vein, uh, into Doug Baldwin Jr. and Tyler Lockett and and go, continuing onward. And uh, someone who that year, Joey Galloway, sat out the start of the season because he was unhappy with his contract and, and Dawkins really stepped up as a leading receiver for the Seahawks. For sure. Absolutely loved Sean Dawkins as a player. And then again, played in the Pac-12 uh, before then. Um, played with the Chargers also. Uh, somebody who throughout West Coast football was awesome. And who, I mean, for me, that was probably up there with one of the first or second seasons that I was really paying attention to the Seahawks. And he was one of those players who, like you mentioned, you were always seeing open and instantly started to like. Sean Dawkins did not play for the chargers but uh yeah you the chargers he did not you mentioned the the colts the saints for one season and the jaguars for his final season in 2001 uh yeah you mentioned the pac-12 i mean he was kind of a key figure for a a period of time uh he was part of the cal team i saw this the i believe it was their first bull win in 1990 since 1958 wow it had been that long i mean that was in Euro, obviously, where it was a lot harder to go to, go to bowls, but uh, pretty remarkable period in Cal's history. And then in 1991, the year after that, they uh, were the the toughest competition in some ways. I mean, oh, actually, longer. That was their no. It was only their second bowl game they'd played in since 1958. They lost the Rose Bowl, according to Sports Reference, in 1937. In 1958, it was their first bowl win since the 1937 Rose Bowl. When they won in 1990, their first bowl win at all. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, then that 1991 team that finished in the top ten gave UW in some ways its toughest test en route to the undefeated season, and then the year after that, 1992, Keith Gilbertson took over as coach at Cal after being the offensive coordinator at UW as part of that undefeated team. And, and uh, Bruce Snyder left for Arizona State on the strength of that Cal top 10 finish. And uh, that was when Dawkins had his best season, 65 catches, 1,070 yards as a junior before being drafted in the first round. Yeah, uh, Consensus All-America. So a really remarkable career for Sean Dawkins. And uh, uh, not, not, you know, as much too young as Alex Collins, but still at age 52, too young in, in his own right. 
All right. With that, we move forward into the Mariners and your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. I didn't write this down, so I'm do- I'm doing this uh, off the dome. Uh, it's too hot to write things down in Seattle. Uh, but last week, I dubbed the Seattle Mariners team the Don't Look Now Seattle Mariners. And it was shocking how prescient I was about the Don't Look Now Seattle Mariners of 2023. Because this last week, Don't Look Now, Don't Look now meant everything. It meant... Don't look now. George Kirby threw a complete game shutout and the Mariners lost. It meant don't look now. Dominic Canzone just tied the game up after Cedric Mullins robbed Ty France. But it also meant don't look now. Cedric Mullins just ended the game. It meant don't look now. The Mariners came back in Kansas City from a huge deficit. And it meant don't look now. Somehow they blew the game again. Even earlier today, don't look now. I wasn't looking at all. I left assuming this game was done, which the don't look now Mariners joke was on me because with two outs in the bottom of the ninth, I was not looking. Somehow the game ended up tied and I get a notification that don't look now. The Mariners have won in extra innings. This team while not necessarily winning the amount of games we wanted them to, you cannot deny that this last week has been fun baseball. Across the board, don't look now, because some crazy shit is coming. It's been much wa- must-watch baseball, certainly. Yeah, you look back at their, uh, uh, starting with that Saturday game against Baltimore, a one-run loss in the 10th, a two-run loss in the 10th, a one-run loss in the bottom of the ninth on a walk-off, and then a win in the 10th. So it has been nothing if not dramatic. And uh, the Murders bullpen has played a key role in that. And I I naively said on last week's podcast that the Mariners sweeping the Angels, winning a series of close games in Anaheim, was going to take the pressure off the bullpen for when they inevitably suffered a loss following the Paul Seawald trade. And don't look now, I spoke way too soon. There we go. Because the the great Mariners bullpen angst of 2023 is now upon us, understandably after uh, you know, not that the not that the bullpen necessarily was a big factor in the one nothing loss on Saturday night. You know, you're inheriting uh, Andres Munoz in that case was inheriting a runner on second and allowing them to score. It was more about the offense. Uh, but then you have, you know, the the two run homer by Mullins, as you mentioned, in the tenth, uh, after Munoz had already given up a run in the ninth to fall behind in that one. Trent Thornton comes on to pitch the tenth that gives up the two run homer. Matt Brash comes on for the save on Monday in Kansas City uh, with the lead and surrenders two runs in a walk off. And then Tuesday night, as you mentioned, Andres Munoz allows three runs in the bottom of the ninth is the Royals tie that one before the Mariners came back to win. It was, it was one of those things where like you, you would be tempted to have a hot take about the Mariners bullpen and because of the seawall trade, but on the other side to get them in the position to be losing those games, 
You have Josh Rojas with the clutch hit to tie the game in the first game against Kansas Series. And an absolute gem. This, to me, was the highlight of the season so far. Dominic Canzone with that dinger, two outs. And the bat flip, that play was incredible. That wasn't even the Dominic Dom Canzone highlight of the weekend. The highlight of the weekend was Dom Canzone making the Italian gesture after getting a hit. This was the most Italian moment for the Mariners since John Marzano and Paul Sorrento were on the team together. <laughs> Right now, there are two Italians. If they was, bring back was Matt John Marzano in the in the brawl with Paul O'Neill, is that the most Italian Mariners moment specifically? If, if Paul Sorrento was on the field at the time. All right, but well, let me that, dig into the box scores for Dom that one. Dom Canzone with the hand motion. Canzone, sorry. Dominic Thank Canzone you. with the hand motion and then the dinger to tie it up. I mean, it was an incredible Dominic Canzone weekend. We haven't quite gotten the great Hagerty moment just yet. It feels like he's right there, oh, but also the, it was, the walk in. I don't know. I can't remember. What, I think that was the ninth on Monday night. It was a, eked out a three-two uh, walk after going behind O2 in the count. It was very impressive. There we go. That's our great Hagerty moment. It was funny because immediately I couldn't. I couldn't do this Italian on Italian crime when Canzone drop the ball that turned into an inside the park home run for Bobby Witt, which by the way, errors just do not exist in the major leagues anymore. It's like, maybe they should just get rid of the concept of errors, which I think I'm fine with overall. But like, if you're going to have such strict rules for what an error should be, just get rid of it completely. Uh, the moment that that happened, I was like, Hagerty catches that ball. Uh, same thing. I, I wasn't watching this play either. Right. The, the walk off squeeze that happened. Dylan Moore is playing first base, right? And he doesn't field the ball cleanly. Correct. Hagerty fields that ball cleanly. Uh, Hagerty did not play first base in that situation because it would have required the Mariners giving up the DH. He had come oh, on that's for why the DH. He didn't go to first base. Yes. Okay, because I was like, I was going to say he's exper- He's way more experienced than Dylan Moore at first base. Yes, he's got those two hole starts earlier this season. He's played it before, though. But yeah, I mean, that's why the squeeze was like particularly well-timed in that situation. It was well-executed anyway, but particularly against a guy who had, you know, no experience playing first base. Uh, it was well done. All right, the, that play happened on August 28th, 1996, and Paul Sorrento was at first base. There we go. One. There we go. Okay, that's the most Italian moment in Mariners history. <laughs> <laughs> with, the, with so far the... so far i think number number two is the the combination canzone uh i were you watching you were at day in day out festival when you hit that homer right no i was at the mariner uh, the storm game and watching oh. it on my phone and so like the i i had i had really good reception uh when i was in my media seats but at that point i was up in the stands for a little bit and it was like super grainy on my phone, and I but I could just barely make out Cedric Mullins robbing the home. Who who did he rob? Ty France. Yeah, but it was clear enough to see. Like the camera is zooming way up on the stands. Like clearly, that's a home run by Kansas. It was like having those plays back to back, which again, don't look now, Seattle Mariners. I can't even believe it. When Cedric Mullins goes up and robs Ty France, you're just like, the game's over. Like that's it. Cedric Mullins did it. And then for Canzoni to come back and hit that homer after that, it was one of those moments. They had one of these in, I want to say, maybe it was Boston earlier in the year or Anaheim, where they had this huge moment like, oh, God, what was that game? Uh, 
Oh, it was a Colton Wong homer. Where Colton Wong hits oh, his yeah. like first homer of the season. You're so high, and then Munoz comes back and blows the save. And you're just like, for real? How, like The Mariners are the number one proof that... I don't know if anybody ever argues about momentum in baseball all that much. But like this team is the, mo- the most momentumless baseball team. They get these great moments, and then just like literally the next inning, Cedric Mullins hits a homer, and you're just like, "All right, well, that was fun for a second. Yeah. Can we have a good fucking moment?" I mean, the seven-game winning streak was a pretty good moment. I mean, the Mariners were tied for the third wild card, and then all of this crazy stuff happens, and immediately they're two games out. It was it was a moment for a second where you're like, "Wow, they're actually going to do this." In my head, I'm considering buying playoff tickets. I went way too far. Way too far. Because yeah. again, so you're at, the problem. At at the end of the seven game win streak, you probably shouldn't check the wild card standings at that point. But I was just like, what's it gonna be like? I was thinking about how annoyed I was with uh John Stanton. I was like, this team's gonna fucking make the playoffs. After all of this, they're gonna have done everything wrong the entire offseason, personnel wise, and they're still gonna make the playoffs. I can't let this team be rewarded for that. Uh would you like to let's remember some guys on this August 28th, 1996 game and see how many Mariners who played in this game you can name? Mariners who played in that game? Yeah. Well, I mean, Buner. There, there's a few easy ones. Yes, obviously. Was it Eric Coleman? I don't know who Eric Coleman is. Are you thinking of Wait, Vince Coleman? Vince Coleman. Sorry. Sorry. I'm thinking of two different Eric Anthony and Vince Coleman. Well, neither of them were in, on the 1996 team. Eric Anthony was in 94 and Vince Coleman was in 95. So no. <sighs> You you got who did you get? Buner Griffey. Okay, you're missing at least one, two other free spaces, maybe three other. Sorrento. You've already. Well, I'm Cora, already counting him. A Rod. Yes. yes. Flowers. Marzano. Flowers Edgar. was not on the '96 team. Russell Davis. Edgar was. Uh, uh, Russell Davis did not have the night off. Did not appear in the Doug game. Doug Strange. Doug Strange was at third. There we go. So I'm just missing left field, right? Uh, among the starting lineup, yes. Alex Diaz? No. Was hard-hitting Mark Witten on that team? Hard-hitting Mark Witten was had was acquired around the trade deadline or maybe in early was August he in that, that year. Game? Yes, he started in left field. So you've got, got the, the entire I got I got the whole defense. You got the entire starting nine. Now, Marzano obviously was kicked out of the game as part of that brawl. <laughs> I guess so, Dan Wilson came in. Dan Wilson. Him, yeah. There was one other hitter who you we would be here all night and you would never get it. Oh, the Greg Perkle? No, a- Andy Sheets came in to oh, pinch okay, run for yeah, Cora was, and play second base. Uh, Started the game. The starting pitcher that year uh, played only for the Mariners in 1996. Was acquired via midseason trade. Oh God, it was. They got two. No, they got who's ninety five. They get two lefties that year in midseason trade. One of them was Jamie Moyer. It was oh my was, god, the other guy from. I want to say he came over from Boston or Toronto. No, don't think oh so. Oh my god, why can't I remember this dude's name? Wow, he pitched for a lot of teams, more teams than I realized. Ugh. He came over from the team that he most famously pitched for and was an all-star for in 1993 when that team had its 
best year I'm bl- in the I'm blanking on who that pitcher was. Terry Mulholland went oh, seven innings. Oh, t- that was not the one that I was thinking of. Terry Mulholland. Wow. And the re- long relievers in that one in what was a a 10-2 to two Mariners win, Tim Davis and Greg McCarthy. Yeah, Tim Davis, I think I do not remember. Greg McCarthy was, is like a just barely remember, but Tim Davis is gone. Tim Davis was like a super skinny left-handed pitcher who uh, I think started at some point. Yeah. He did start six games for the Mariners, including five in 95, but uh, worked exclusively out of the pen in 96. So was there you it, go. Was it, it was the next year that we made the trade for Mike Timlin, um, where we made the Jose, the Jose Cruz trade? It was 97, Correct. right? Yeah. Okay. Was Jose Mesa also acquired that? That trade deadline? Yeah. Or was he on the uh, roster? I mean, so at this no, point... No, because it was Slocum, Timlin, and Spoljarek were the three players. Mesa came along later. So, but so Darren Bragg would have still been on the roster and Veritek in 96, right? I don't I think Veritek was in the minors in 96. Yeah. And probably so was Darren Bragg at that point. Uh, no, Darren Bragg had already been traded. He got traded from Moyer. Oh, so Veritek was a different trade. He got traded for Heathcliff Slocum. And, and along Bra- with Derek Lowe. Oh, Derek Lowe was part of that trade also. Yeah, which really, really an awful trade. If we ever look back on, my hope is that someday we'll look back on the Seawald trade like the Heathcliff Slocum trade. So the Mariners traded for Jamie Moyer from Boston, though. Yes, but okay, earlier so they, in the year. They won one of those and, trades and, he, and lost one of those trades. Yes, they got him in 96. The, those trades were in 97, as you said. All right, I did want to dig deeper on the bullpen a little bit. Uh, the Mariners are third in reliever war over the course of the season per fan graphs. For, per fan graphs. Entering Tuesday night's game, they were fifth in reliever war in the month of August. So even with the recent breakdowns prior to uh, Tuesday night again, still the relievers overall have been quite outstanding without Seawald. I'm I'm fine with it. I am I am fine with the Paul Seawall trade at this point. Like I I'm Munoz is not gonna be as bad as Munoz has been in these handful of games. Yes. I mean it, I think they they could definitely use a, another arm down there, but you kind of go through it war wise. Like first off, Taylor Sacedo has a remarkably strong war for some reason. We've talked about this with with relievers. It's just like Kind of with starters for the Mariners this year, too. They're sort of just calling up some guys, right? I mean, they've called up every prospect they have. Even Hancock before the Grand Slam. <laughs> you know, he looked great before the Grand Slam. <laughs> but still, like, it seems like I, I have faith that Emerson Hancock will be a solid starting pitcher. And will be a solid starting pitcher for the rest of the season. Brian Wu has been. Bryce Miller has been. Most of the bullpen has been. I don't know about it. It was Trent, Trent Thornton. Yes, you get that, a little bit deep there when he when he's pitching the tenth. That's the where the spot where you need one more reliever, I think. But the other piece was this wasn't a a Paul Seawald trade issue. This was an off season issue, and that's what I was thinking about during this game because J.P. Crawford gets injured, uh, goes on the injured list for seven days with a concussion. And all of a sudden, the roster looks pretty thin, especially hitting-wise. Even though the Mariners have scored runs in Kansas City, unfortunately, it's been uh, Tay Oscar and Ty France starting to hit again. Yep. Uh, but 
you look at it and you're like, I mean, in the game where they went down against Kansas City, they ended up coming back. In my head, though, I'm just like, who is going to bring this team back here? Much much as we love Canton, as we talked about a moment ago, him hitting cleanup is not a great, <laughs> great scenario. And that's the thing is the depth that they have hitting wise in the same way that they're able to tap into all of these pitchers for the minors. There's really not a lot out there. I've started becoming, I have no faith in Mike Ford whatsoever. Right. And I'm just like, this is who we have to pinch hit right now. So it's the issue is that there aren't enough hitters within the organization more than it was the Paul Seawald trade because they needed to trade Paul Seawald because ultimately the pitching was way stronger than the hitting was Paul Seawald. He was a free agent after the year, right? No, he had one year left after this. He had one year left. Even still, uh, I don't know about that one, but still bringing in two players who currently are starting for the team. They are going to be on the field way more than Paul Seawald is going to be on the field. Right? So if you're talking about one pitcher who's pitching an inning, maybe four out of seven games throughout the week, whereas Canzone and Josh Rojas have been in the starting lineup, one of them, basically every single game since they've been traded for. So the issue is a team-wide organizational hitting depth issue more than it is a Paul Seawald for these two players issue. That's probably true, yes. And that's that's why the in the offseason... Even if we're talking about maybe it wasn't necessarily going out and signing the player for $30 million a year or something, bringing in players who are in that 5 to $10 million range, which I do believe John Stanton, even in his unwillingness to spend, there is still a little bit more money there that they could have gone out uh, and found players. Man, I just looked at Mitch Hanniger's OBP. It's not good. It's just it's everybody. Not good. I mean, nobody's like there just aren't good OBPs throughout the league, so it's almost hard to be like our standard for it is different. But kind of any hitter who's been involved in the Mariners this year or last year, it's not like you're like you look at it and you're like, well, Winker's great now, or Adam Frazier is great now. It's kind of just a lot of bad players being shuffled around. Which look, maybe that's true of almost every major league roster. And the reality is there just aren't that many good hitters at the moment in major leagues. Or the, with the shift plus the skill at pitching, like it's just really hard to hit. But that means that's why you should be paying such a premium for those hitters. If the conversation is we're trying to understand why these hitters are getting paid so much money. A hitter who is above average, you know, even if they're having a down season, is so much more valuable. The Rangers went out and signed those players, and all of a sudden, they're going to win the AL West this year. Yes, even though it did not pay off for them immediately. It it does seem to be working out now. So, I I don't... I I still think it makes sense, even though most of the big free agent signings this offseason haven't been good. I still think it makes sense to go out and get players like that who over a long period of time, you know, you can count on. Whereas otherwise you're talking about like, you know, trading your closer for Josh Rojas and Dominic Canzone. Yes. It's not a great proposition. So I don't, it's, it's an organist. Everything that the Mariners do is an organizational failure aside from this small handful of things that they've done correctly. But like this, this is another one. Uh, I was also thinking about just how radically different the team, like these conversations we're having when I said that the Mariners had no holes on the roster <laughs> at the beginning of the year and just how many different players are playing on a day-to-day basis that I'd never heard of 
Yeah. You know, and that's how a baseball season works. So it's really hard to, we pour over this, we stress about yeah, it. Yeah, but usually the starting second baseman doesn't get released mid on opening day, doesn't get released mid-season. Oh, the Mariners released two opening day starters mid-season because yes. Tommy yes. LaStella also started opening day. I mean, that was pretty sinister, but <laughs> that was sinister at the time that they were starting Tommy LaStella. Is Tom Murphy hurt? Where has he been? That's a, yeah, that's a good question, because I wondered why he didn't pinch hit last night, and and then he didn't play at all today, did he? So, But again, I'm like, wow, the Mariners need Tom Murphy's bat. But I mean, like, Caballero, I'd never heard of before the year, right? Canzone, no. Rojas. I wasn't even, he wasn't even on my radar as minor league infielders. It was Mason McCoy who ended up getting traded uh, at some point here. Uh, was was the the name I was paying attention to among minor league infielders. So, uh, you also wanted to talk about John Stanton's Shohei Otani quote. So, Geekwire last week held a rooftop barbecue and Mariners Day, I believe, was the uh, the term for this. Uh, that John Stanton, the Mariners CEO and and principal owner, was the uh, featured speaker at, and he was asked by Taylor Soper of Geekwire, who uh, we occasionally tailgate with, uh, "Are you more intrigued Did by building really? up? Yeah, uh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's part of our group. Are you more intrigued by building up from within, creating a champion from pieces of your system, or are you more intrigued by perhaps by signing a free agent, maybe one who is becoming a free agent soon, by the name of Shohei Otani?" And Stan's answer was, we focus on developing great players. We believe that the best player for us over time is going to be a young player that we're able to have all the way through our system and develop. We will look at free agents every offseason to fill needs. From our point of view, Otani is the unicorn. We'll clearly look at him. We'll clearly be in the conversation. But I think we've got a great team with or without him. I think this means nothing. That's just like a series of words. I mean, I, I guess you were saying you feel like this means that John Stanton is not going to be like, yes, of course, we're going to try and try to sign Shoei Otani because tampering, tampering, tampering wise, that's the thing that he can't say. They still had a conversation about it, though. And ultimately, John Stanton said. I'm surprised he was willing to mention the name Otani. Like, I don't think that Jerry DePoto would utter the name Otani other than in the context of speaking about him as a member of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. If if you are a person, we had this conversation last week about Washington State University athletic director who was blindsided by UW and Oregon <laughs> leaving for the Big Ten after a year of rumors. If you are a person who, when Shohei Otani signs with another team or resigns with the Angels, and you are blindsided by the Mariners not signing him, you're not listening to what he's saying. Because what John Stanton did is he told you the entire organizational strategy of the Seattle Mariners, which is to not compete. Ultimately, that's what he was saying. He said, this is how we view things. We view things in the cheapest way. It, a very nice way to say it is you want somebody who's going to be with you. And of course, everybody wants good prospects. But yeah. what that means... Of course, you... the best player for us is over time is going to be a young player that we're able to have here all the way through our system and develop. Like, Julio is the best case scenario for the Mariners, not Shohei Otani. That doesn't mean you can't have Shohei Otani too. 
Yes, but John Stanton didn't say that. John Stanton said, organizationally, we want players who are young and we can have through our system because, A, they are under team control for a number of years. That is how they view things. That is how they have view things. That's right? how every team viewed things. No one no, is like, not. hey, if let's you not ask develop the San Diego players. Padres how they viewed things, do you think if you have if Taylor Soper has the exact I don't I don't know who the owner and team president of the Padres is, right? But Kevin Towers? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> no uh, he never was that. <laughs> the, Apparently the owner is someone named Peter Seidler. Peter Seidler. If you're having that conversation with Peter Seidler, it is a different answer. And you know that it's a different answer. Because again, John Stanton wasn't giving lip service here. And that is my second complaint about this. It's fucking August. Just lie to us. That's all we are asking for. We don't need to be have our expectations set. Mariners fans have their expectations set to be bad because of the history of the Seattle Mariners. You could just give us hope for a second. And that's the thing that I hate the most about sports owners and front offices or whatever. Just tell us what we want to hear right now. Nobody's going to be holding John Stanton accountable next November, December, or whatever, right? Nobody's well, going to be I like, but might. wait, John Stanton, you said that the team was going to try to sign Shohei Otani. What you say then is, we tried to sign Shohei Otani. We didn't get him. That's how you do it. There are certain people who get this right and certain people who get it wrong, and the Mariners are awful at it. They are awful at telling people what they want to hear because right now it's August and we would like the hope of Shohei Otani. You just say, hey, I understand that there is a player who's going to be a free agent this offseason, whether you want to mention him by name or not. And of course we will be in that conversation. It would be absurd. He said we're in the, we'll be in the conversation. That's what he said. He didn't though. He said, of course, they, they gave it a kick the tires. He said, our organizational strategy is to not sign Shohei Otani, but of course we'll call. If Shohei Otani wants to sign for $15 million a year, we'll be there. That is what the Mariner, that is what John Stanton is saying to you. The conversation is done. The Shohei, the, he, you shouldn't even mention Shohei Otani at all. Like, it, it's not, he's not on your team currently. The free agency is not happening now. There is no upside to saying anything publicly about Shohei Otani. Or give me that. That the issue is not the, I mean the issue is his response because organizationally he's trying to build a team that is scraping for the third wild card. Like that is what John Stanton I mean, is trying to create. We've been over this. Julio Rodriguez is, is 23. This is not the Mar George Kirby is whatever age George Kirby is. This is not the Mariners peak. They still they're going to have to spend money at some point and you understand that. I I anticipate that they will spend money at some point. If they don't, I will be very unhappy. But they're going to have to spend money on at some point. Obviously, these players are going to be really expensive. Julio, they have locked up, but like all these young players at some point are. Well, going that's to why they're going to trade some of these pitchers. Like that's why there were Logan Gilbert trade rumors leading up to the deadline. I don't. I think that was premature. I don't think that was like wrong long term. Also, just like you can't have as many pitchers as they have at some point. But if you're John Stanton, just no comment. Literally, that's it. He, he just has to go so far out of his way to be like, you're a small market. The fans aren't doing enough. Fuck you. This is what you get. That's what that statement was. Literally, I a no didn't comment. didn't hear any of those things in there. It is not news. 
That is all that you have to do. Organizationally, why do the Mariners feel like it's important to put us down and to set the expectations low? Just be like there, there are teams, people do this in basketball all the time. Every good player that has ever been traded for, there are certain people who are like, Yeah, we were in on that. Oh, we were just about to draft that player. Yeah, after it happens, is the, Danny exactly. Ainge isn't like, Yeah, we're going to trade for Anthony Davis. He doesn't go to the media and be like, you know, hold a Q&A with fans and be like, yeah, we, we want to get Anthony Davis because, you know, we're going to give up everything we can to get him. But going in, you know that Danny Ainge is trying because he told you he's trying. Was he not trying? John Stanton is just like, yeah, I mean, sure, I guess like if we'll call. If for some reason every other team doesn't want to pay Shohei, we'll be there. That's what he gave us. This Whatever... Uh, Chris Flexen was another key opening day, not an opening day starter, but member of the starting rotation who got basically given away midseason. Uh, whatever I your mean, like Chris, percentage, Chris Flexen oh, was was it was a rough year. It was, and that was a reasonable one for the Mariners. I can't blame them on that one. Whatever your percentage odds are of the Mariners getting signing Shohei Otani, they should change zero percent based on John Stanton's comment. They did because they went from zero to still zero. <laughs> All they right. could they couldn't go down. Uh one last bit of Mariners news. Marco Gonzalez will have a cleanup procedure on his left elbow to relieve pressure on the nerve that's been the source of his arm pain. Uh Gonzalez was diagnosed with a rare condition called anterior enterosis nerve syndrome. Uh the surgery will end Gonzalez's season, but should allow him to throw normally during the offseason heading into spring training. Do you think this is the most we've talked about the Mariners just like actually having a conversation about them? Has to be up there. It's, it's up there, yeah. What if this this again, I, I ran wild in my head on I think Saturday. Uh I mean Kirby was dealing, right? I mean Kirby had probably the best game a Mariner pitcher has had all year. And in my head, I'm like, when I mean, we we need to note at some point that Felix Hernandez was being inducted to the Mariners Hall of Fame that night. And it just like the jokes wrote themselves. I know. I, I didn't even want to mention it because of how obvious it is. <laughs> but so George Kirby's throwing this gem of a game, right? And in my head, I'm like, we need to do an emergency pod when the Mariners sweep the Orioles. I, I would just like, this is serious. Like beating the Padres is one thing. Beating the Angels is another thing. If you're sweeping the best team in the AL... This is a big deal. I went wild with my perspective in my head. I was just like, this team, you get Castillo, Kirby, Gilbert in the playoffs. We're winning the World Series. <laughs> Again, this wasn't even hot takes going through my head. <laughs> I actually thought this information. And then they almost lost to the Royals twice. They really did. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, they did lose to the Royals once. This team, oh. I was just like, we need to do an emergency pod on the Mariners. It's like, this is, it's all happening. It's all coming together. Jerry DePoto was right. <laughs> Say what you will about John Stanton. At least he has not suspended Mike Blowers at any point this season. Uh, or Dan Wilson. Like, I, I don't know if Mike Blowers, <laughs> I, I mean, yes. The Mariners You're... are... are you're saying they're not saying anything as controversial as <laughs> no, a no, stat no. about the team? No, that, they are. They are. <laughs> all right. Let's get into the, the random. Mariners broadcast is a pretty solid broadcast. All Top around. notch. Uh, the Seattle Sounders are going to play a game this weekend. After the three-week break, they will return to game action on Sunday, hosting Atlanta United, who comes in seventh in the East standings, 
but just barely behind the Sounders, who are fourth in the West in terms of points per match. Designated player Tiago Almada has eight goals and 10 assists, ranking second in MLS in the latter category. Several of those assists to Yorgios uh, Yakuma Akas, who has 10 goals. Stefan Fry expected to start in goal for the Sounders coming back from finger surgery. Brian Schmetzer told reporters earlier this week he's hopeful of having both Javier Ariaga and Christian Roldan available. Sounders signed Seattle native Paul Rothrock to a first-team contract after he was promoted from the Tacoma Defiance on a short-term loan for the maximum three games, scoring in all of them, including the game winner in an MLS regular season match at Houston in May. So congrats to Paul Rothrock. Uh, Oil Rain also returning to action this weekend as the NWSL regular season resumes. They'll be in Kansas City to take on the team that knocked them out of last year's playoffs. Uh, they'll get the Canadian players plus Brazilian Angelina back this week after their team's early exit in the group stages of the World Cup. USWNT players not expected back for Friday's match per Jada Evans. With the top seed secured in the Challenge Cup, the focus now shifts for Oil Rain to the playoff race. Probably five teams for four spots with seven games left in the regular season. The uh, North Carolina Courage have 26 points atop the NWSL table. The Thorns, Portland Thorns and Gotham FC have 25 apiece, and the Rain and the Washington Spirit each have 24. So very compact standings in the NWSL. Uh, Seattle Storm got some bad news that Gabby Williams' injury last Tuesday was more serious than we realized at the time we recorded a week ago. It's a stress fracture in her left foot that will sideline Williams for four to six weeks, likely ending her season. Without her, Storm still reeled off a pair of wins over the last week, coming back from a 15-point deficit in the fourth quarter to beat Atlanta 68-67 on Thursday when Jewel Lloyd made the go-ahead three-point play in the final minute. Then more easily, handling Phoenix 81-71 on Sunday to complete a season series sweep 4-0 against the Mercury. Storm now won five of their last seven games, more than over their first 23 games when they went 4-19. That comes after Sammy Whitcomb's move into the starting lineup at point guard, which has transformed the offense, also relying a little more heavily on veterans, though less so with Williams' injury. Rookie Jordan Horston has started the last two games at small forward, giving the Storm two rookie starters, with Jade Melbourne also playing a key bench role. The four-storm rookie, Ivana Dojkic, left the team last week to return to Europe after falling out of the rotation and agreeing to a buyout. Uh, Storm, like the rest of the WNBA, have the start of this week off uh, as the league was setting up the Commissioner's Cup final on Tuesday, won by Brianna Stewart and the Liberty in Las Vegas over the Aces. Uh, they'll return to action Friday, completing a homestand by hosting Minnesota. They're in Minnesota on Sunday as part of a three-game road trip that will also take them to Chicago and Indiana. Okay, so after this recent win streak for the Storm, how many more games are left? Uh, let's see here. They are 9-21, and 21, so 10 games left in the regular season. Okay, so not a ton of games left. Not. With 10 games left in the regular season, where do we stand in lottery watch right now? So three games out of the eighth spot. Uh, there, There is now, like Chicago has, after playing well for a period of time, has now slumped a little bit and fallen into a tie with Los Angeles for the eighth playoff spot at 12 and 18. So again, we're rooting for Chicago to be in the lottery, which would all but assure the storm uh, having the third best odds going into the lottery and the third, assuming they miss the playoffs puts them at about 25%. 
to get number one, not quite that high. Okay. I need to memorize the, these odds clearly. There's only four teams, comes, right? Always comes up. Yes. Uh, 18% if you have the third best odds. So whoever has the first best odds is like... 44%, which will assuredly be the Indiana favor. Okay. Who now, again, have the league's best worst record at 8-23, despite having a better point differential than not only the Storm and the Mercury, but also Minnesota, who is in the playoffs at 12-14 and 16. And if the Storm make the playoffs, point, they're, point they're obviously out of the lottery. Correct. What are we cheering for right now? I mean, it's good for them to continue playing well and showing that, you know, particularly showing Joel Lloyd that there's, you know, some talent to build around here with, with Jordan Horston's development, uh, with kind of the offense running more functionally, but just not quite enough to make the playoffs. Okay. You would be fine if they had the fourth best odds, which puts them at what? 10%. The odds aren't great. They're better than zero. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So there's some key games coming up here, but uh, again, need the Storm to win in Chicago. That's and, the important thing. And second thing. is virtually impossible. It would require either Indiana or Phoenix uh, making a run to get into the playoffs. Phoenix has the identical 9-21 and 21 record as the Storm in Indiana. Again, 8-23. and 23. I'm going to call this right now. When do they do the lottery? Typically in November during a key non-conference college basketball game. Caitlin Clark is going to be on the Mercury next year. You're calling that? I th- <sighs> there's just I I don't think the league fixes these things, but it's a franchise that would make a lot of sense. Like Caitlin Clark is coming, coming out. If it's Phoenix who has the pick, right. Replacing Diana Taurasi. It makes so much sense. You're in a relatively like great sports market, right. A market that people want to play in. It's still a destination market. Uh, Committed new owner with Matt Ishbia. 130 degrees there for the entire month. Uh, But I, it just, it makes too much sense to me for Caitlin Clark to be there. The Caitlin Clark Brittany Griner combo would be would be fun to watch. All right, UW football. The Huskies were ranked tenth in the preseason AP poll. Local AP writer Tim Booth noted that of the thirteen previous times UW has started the season in the top ten, oh they finished there just three times. It's those coming in 1960, 1982, and nineteen ninety one. It's a death blow. Being in the top 10, expectations have not been good to the University of Washington. I believe I structured an entire bold prediction around this way back when in December. I wanted to provide some context based on the history of the AP poll, which dates back to 1936 in its continuous form. Uh, All of that available on sportsreference.com. Historically, 54% of teams that start in the top 10 finish there. Among teams who have made the preseason top 10 at least 10 times, only Arkansas at 18% has finished in the top 10 less often than UW. Texas A&M at 27% is the third team under 30%. Wow. So you're telling me that UW, relative to high expectations, UW is the worst at meeting those expectations of any program in the country. That is correct. Wow. I mean, we feel it, right? When you Second saw worst. that top 10. 
Arkansas. Who was worse? Oh, Arkansas, Arkansas is the worst. When you saw that, like you saw that top ten, I was like, we're gonna finish like number nineteen <laughs> or something. I, well, I feel like my well. expectations for this season are both grandiose and the most in check they could possibly be. Because again, similar to being a Mariners fan, I have history of being a University of Washington football fan and know what it's like having expectations going into year. We had Jake Logger. I was talking to Jan about it. And she was like, wow, ranked top 10. They'll have to be good. Is it, <laughs> isn't Penix coming back for his senior year? And I was like, Jan, you don't understand. I don't, I don't know if it's quite the same as Penix. Even Cody Pickett, I don't know if it's quite the same. I understand. Look, I, Michael Penix is probably going to be great. But just, you know, deep down, somewhere deep down, you're like, the defense is going to be bad. Michael Penix, God forbid, will get injured. People will have figured out the offense this year. Or he'll just be bad for some reason. Like, somewhere deep down, you're just like, this team is not going to be as good as these preseason expectations because we have seen it. And until, until they meet the expectations, I will not believe it. I haven't even told you the second part of the step. Oh, God. So the 13 times that UW has previously been ranked in the top 10 in the AP poll preseason, six times they have finished unranked. So twice as often as they have actually finished the season in the top 10. That's happened just 18% of the time for all teams historically. At 46%, UW has the single highest rate of finishing unranked among teams in the preseason top 10 at least 10 times. Just ahead of, once again, Arkansas. At five of 11 years, just five total schools have gone from top 10 to unranked more than one third of the time, in at least 10 of their opportunities. I can't believe it. It's great when the stats confirm something you feel deeply <laughs> in your soul. Yes. Now, part of the issue is that naturally not all top 10 spots are created equal. Teams like the Huskies ranked precisely 10th are much more likely to finish unranked historically. That happens 41% of the time than finish in the top 10, which happens just 25% of the time. And they've those top 10 preseasons, they've probably been closer to 10 than one. Yes, they've never been one. They've been two a couple of times. I, I didn't go through the whole list because it wasn't quite as like at the bottom of the top 10 as I expected. There's like really? a lot of sixes and sevens in there. So, and somehow the 1992, one of the years that they finished outside the top 10 was when they were preseason number two. Yeah. Coming off the national shared national championship. Where did they finish in the end of the 92 season? 11th. 11th. Okay. No, I mean, they weren't underranked. They still went to the Rose Bowl. They were undefeated until the Billy Joe Hovert suspension. Oh, and then things fell apart. Yeah. Lost to Arizona at Arizona and then in the Apple Cup to Washington State in the snow. And then, uh, well, two, two games they may not have to play anymore in the snow in Washington State or at Arizona. I like in the snow against Washington State as if that's something that won't be happening to the job anymore. They'll never play in the snow in the Big Ten. Well, yes, that, that part of it, yes. Uh, and then they lost to their conference rival Michigan in the Rose Bowl that oh, year. Oh, man. Uh, we're also, also looking at that top 10, uh, right. Finishing preseason top 10 feels really good. You're like, that would be near the top of the conference. And then looking at next year's big 10 and seeing that UW would be fifth in the big 10. <laughs> and it's just like, it, it's not going to be easy. I mean, be, basically be careful list, what you wish for. 
I think there were two ACC teams, and then it was all Big Ten and SEC for next year. I think Clemson so those... and Florida State. And I also was just like, at the moment, this was before the Clemson or the, the Florida State deadline had passed. I was like, maybe there's another Big Ten team in here that we don't even know about. Those Big Ten schools, number two, Michigan, number three, Ohio State, number six, USC, number seven, Penn State, and Washington. So USC, again, the highest ranked of the current Pac-12 teams and the AP polls. Or uh, Utah at number 14, Oregon at 15, Oregon State at 18. Uh, I had two more. This is quick thoughts about conference realignment that came of news that came out. Do you have any other conference realignment stuff? I don't. Of, of bits of news that came out after we talked last week. So I think the first one, I'm not sure if this has happened, but there was the report that Fox Sports basically was paying extra for UW and Oregon to join. Yes. So the, the current Big Ten teams are not forfeiting any TV money by adding UW and Oregon. Which I, I was maybe I a little the, bit surprised about. I believe The Athletic had that report. Um, And seeing that information, obviously, I mean, it kind of ends up feeling, it's not a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer in the short term for the Big Ten. Once they get to the next TV deal, that's the part where it's actually going to be felt by everybody individually. But the expectation but, is it'll be so much higher with, with those yeah, schools. Yeah, I mean... You know, I go back to like 538 did a lot of modeling basically of conference realignment. And the, like my logic is you should expand as long as the teams you're bringing in are more valuable than your average current team. And UW and Oregon are clearly more valuable than the average current Big Ten team. And but so seeing that it was interesting. People were talking about like, well, if espn or if fox was willing to pay for 30 million for these two schools like why wouldn't they just pay and all these schools could go to the big 12 why wouldn't they just basically pay for the pac-10 pac-12 rights or whatever and i think that people aren't understanding and this is part of my second point also which was the report uh that george klavikoff was basically turned down a 30 million per team offer from espn uh earlier in the year right? what a, was it george klivikoff specifically or the president I... so th this is a two-part point that i want to make because people are definitely giving george klivikoff basically all of the responsibility of he just said no right. right and as far as we know the presidents hadn't been presented with that offer necessarily there's no way that there wasn't a conversation about it and i think what happened from the presidents was there are presidents of certain schools who told him what the dollar amount they wanted to be at was and what they would feel comfortable signing a long-term grant of rights at. And that dollar amount is not the same as what they got initially in the Big Ten. And it's not the same for each school. And I think that people aren't necessarily understanding that what might have be a great amount if you're Oregon State or Wazoo or Cal or Stanford even is not the same as if you're Oregon or UW. So just treating these sure. numbers as if they're equal doesn't really make sense. But also those numbers aren't the same in the Big Ten and in the Pac-12, right? Because it's still, you're at that 30 million and it feels relatively static. It's not in six, seven years that 30 million is going to become 50 million or 60 million with all the added benefits. So just treating it as apples to apples. And basically, I think people have basically treated it as for, for, for a lark, right? Laughing at George Klovkoff. And it's kind of like he was I don't know if he's handled things the right way or whatever, the best possible way. It was a losing hand that he was dealt to begin with. The second that USC and UCLA left, it was over. But yes. the first point that I made about about Fox 
which is they're willing to pay for UW and Oregon. That that dollar amount makes sense for those two schools, right? It is an appropriate dollar amount for the TV rights for those two schools. But again, it doesn't make sense for the rest of the Pac-12. And I think that's the piece that, of course, they were willing to pay that. Like, I think for Fox, it was probably a bit of a no-brainer. Also, UW and Oregon ultimately are more valuable programs in the Big Ten than they are in the Pac-12. Because you're talking about having more premier matchups, as we just discussed. The amount of teams who are in the Big Ten who are ranked in the top 10 next year is half of the teams. There's, there are going to be big matchups. Half of the top 10, not half the Big Ten teams. Half of the top 10. So there are going to be bigger... By having better teams in a conference, obviously schools are going to go up and down throughout each year. And you kind of have to sort of level out because of... People, somebody has to win in these games. Not everybody can be great in a conference. But if you're only bringing in great programs to a conference and the biggest programs every everything is more valuable there right because the games get bigger it's more or less what the big 10 is becoming and the sec ultimately is they're becoming the nfl and that's like i I don't think i think nfl tv is pretty indisputable as far as the value and if that's what fox is trying to build fox understands the value of the nfl and having these key matchups every single week and if that's something that they're trying to build, it makes a lot more sense for UW and Oregon to be in there, but not necessarily the entire Pac-12. You basically told me it just matters more. Uh, the the one piece of reporting that I haven't seen that I'd be curious about is whether the Pac-12 ever like even had a discussion about unequal distribution of the TV revenue, because that was the only way. That was the actual only way they were going to keep things together. Because again, the things you know, everyone keeps talking about. Oh, the Pac-12 had the most revenue in. 2016 or whatever you know whatever they did the fundamental issue here is that UW was making the same money from TV as Oregon State was and Washington State was and they weren't all bringing in the same amount and that's what tore apart the part the big 12 the Pac-12 more than anything else and no one has addressed that specific issue I, I think another issue that's going to arise from that though is the thing we've talked about long term because it's still not going to be equal in the Big Ten there are a lot of aligned universities, but it, I mean, the, there is a very clear list of there's tiers in the Big Ten. UW and Oregon are not bringing the same up. Uh, their their TV rights are not as valuable as Ohio State and Michigan's, and they are probably more valuable than Northwestern and Rutgers, right? I don't. I, know. I, we could take the probably of that. Yes, they are more valuable. <laughs> Look, I don't know. Somebody might be out there being like, actually, the Rutgers TV rights are amazing. Look, I know the Northwestern. There's got a lot of North, media. Northwestern alums. is the one that I feel more confident. <laughs> but at some point, everybody is doing well right now. And while everybody is doing well and making a lot of money, things are going to be fine. But the second that there is, there's an inkling of either the SEC is getting more or there become the TV deals aren't as much money and there's a little bit less to go around. All of a sudden, we, we start looking at, because everybody, these are all independent universities. They're not aligned necessarily in the same way. The Seahawks can't be like, well, we're just not going to play in the NFL this year. <laughs> right? It, it did make me start to wonder at some point <laughs> whether, you know, Jerry Jones is like, can we just start another league and get a TV deal where I make more money? Where I don't have to share all my money with the I, Jacksonville Jaguars? much more complicated antitrust I, issues. I, but... <laughs> for sure. So I, I don't think that is going to happen in the NFL, but it is, go, it is going to be a constant cycle in college football because there's a reality that when there was no money at the table, you could be aligned with anybody. You know what I mean? When TV money didn't matter 
obviously money was coming in, but teams were keeping their ticket sales money and shit like that, right? Their merchandise money. If UW is selling more tickets than Cal, they're keeping that money. They're not splitting that money, right? Correct. But when it's about the TV money, if everybody is splitting it equally, all of a sudden there becomes an issue. So I, those are just two things that people acted like both the money that was Fox was paying extra and then also this offer from ESPN. It's like, I don't think that UW and Oregon would have taken that offer. You know, if it was for the Pac-10, maybe with the option of expanding with two schools or something like that from ESPN. I don't think that $30 million is enough for those two schools. $31 million might be enough for Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, and Utah. I think they would have taken there. it just out of out of status quo in inertia and let, history. Let me let me ask you that question then, because they didn't take it. So if but you the, think no, they, they didn't take they didn't take twenty five million. No, and no, heard, no linear TV. There was an offer from ESPN at thirty that was initially passed. So either George Klobuchar never brought this to the presidents. No, I'm. Or, but but that was in a world where they thought this is just the starting point, and we're going to get more than that. They weren't confronted with the reality of Apple is the only bidder, and the the decision they made was in the context of Apple is the only bidder, not in the context of. You're saying if they come back this August. And, I'm, I'm and saying when that when that ESPN offer was made, they were like, the next offer could be anything. It could even be a boat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you, you think they were viewing it as, and then ESPN just walked away from it. Why? Yeah. Did, why did ESPN walk away from that then? I mean, I I can't speak to that decision, but it, you know. Yeah. Sometimes when a request in negotiation is unrealistic, that can end the negotiation. It was sort of like a today's price is not the same as yesterday's price conversation. Could be. I think that was probably the window when it happened. Uh, but so you think had they known if ESPN had come back, they had the Apple offer in hand. If ESPN had come back August with this offer, basically matching the Big 12 more or less. Yes, I think they probably would have stayed. You think the Pac-10 stays together? Yeah. Interesting. I still I still don't think so. I think UW and Oregon knew that there was a reasonable enough chance to get this offer from the Big Ten that they weren't going to commit long-term to the Pac-10. And money-wise, history, everything else-wise, maybe it wasn't the right decision. Money-wise, it was the right decision. Well, that's for sure. All right, well, let's talk about the... Uh... Team that does have a salary cap, the Seahawks, who beat the Vikings 24-13 in their preseason opener with you and baby as fantasy genius in attendance. How long did you make it in this game? Halftime. It was really me who was trying to leave. Yeah. <laughs> like... How did he enjoy it? Uh it was he had a good time. Yeah. It was one of those things where it's like you're not you're not loving it in the moment, but after you're like, yeah, that was fun. I had a great time. Uh, as has become typical since the pandemic canceled the 2020 preseason, we saw a few starters for the Seahawks, basically only the players in position battles, uh, Evan Brown and Phil Haynes on the offensive line, Devin Bush at linebacker, who isn't yet in a position battle, but we'll see on that one, and Trey Brown and Michael Jackson at cornerback, as well as Boye Mafe, who is likely to start, although Daryl Taylor, you'd probably consider the more established player at that outside linebacker spot. 
I think Kobe Bryant. I mean, I guess it's pretty pretty clearly a backup. Yeah, you're, you're saying of starters. Yeah, I mean Jackson Smith and Jigba, like he's not in a position battle. We know what his role is. Yes, but he's not a starter. I mean, I guess it depends how you can categorize the the third wide receiver. Starter. All right. Well, he's also a rookie. They were giving him some action at game speed. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, Charles Cross started last year or played last year in the preseason. It's a little the, the it's a little different when you're a rookie. So you were you at the Storm game while this was happening? I was. Okay. How much were you able to watch? I was streaming it. I saw bits and pieces. I also rewatched a little bit of it tonight before the pod. Although I was b- much busier working on those AP stats. The, oh god. <laughs> terrible, terrible AP stats. <laughs> <laughs> which confirmed our priors yeah. uh what i I mean for me i had three players that stood out for me being at the game and i'm curious uh, sorry at the first half of the game which yeah. at that point by the time we got to the second half i don't think uh, i'm gonna say four the the once you get to the second half, like we're getting pretty deep down on the depth chart as far as players that are going to be having an impact on the NFL or necessarily standing out. I mean, look, someone scored a touchdown in the second half who's part of this list. But uh, yeah, I don't know that I have a lot of Bryant Kobach takes or Holden Ehlers. As we were walking out, I heard that the team scored a touchdown and I looked at who scored and I was like, that's a name. Bryant Kobach. When Talapapa got a carry, that's cool. It was definitely cool seeing Wayne Talapapa. Yeah. All right. Give me your four players. Uh, I mean, initially, very obviously, Kobe Bryant and Devin Bush on the defense. Devin Bush being one of the most experienced defensive players who was on the field. Yeah. Uh, so I, it would have been surprising if Devin Bush didn't stand out. But I do think, I, I don't know, it's a little tough to say because, again, the speed of the game, you can see defensive players who are moving at different speeds. I think especially live, this is easier to see. But you could see defensive players who are moving at different speeds than other players, which is both a combination of their athleticism, but also just their comfort and then their mentality. And I think that's one thing that the Seahawks love to see is they that's why I think they fell in love with Jamal Adams. Right. Jamal Adams is a player who moves when he's healthy at a different speed than everybody else in the field. We saw it initially. Devin Bush in this first preseason game definitely looked like that. Uh, highest, highest graded player per PFF, the, the play that stood out. Uh, and I, I did rewatch that earlier. This uh, the play where he covers Jordan Addison on a crossing route across the field and, and gets a, I think he got a PBU on that play. Nice. That wasn't the Jordan Addison catch that they didn't challenge for some reason. Not the, not that Jordan Addison play. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I kind of get why they didn't challenge it because like, let's just go home. But also it was so clearly a catch. It didn't really make any sense to me, but whatever. Um, this actually technically did not count. That was the Derek Hall roughing the passer, but Devin uh, Bush was in coverage. Uh, Kobe Bryant also playing safety, right? I think Kobe Bryant, the hits that he had and the speed that he was playing on as well, Kobe Bryant in, immediately stood out just looking down and watching the game. It's interesting because on the one hand, playing safety doesn't necessarily move Kobe Bryant up the depth chart that much because you've got... Julian Love there to fill in well. Jamal, Jamal Adams remains sidelined. Uh, but the ability for him to play now, he's shown the ability to play some outside corner. Obviously, that was his position in college. He's started all season at nickel, and now he's playing safety and showing the ability to hit there. Like, 
that's a lot of positional versatility. And that's a nice thing to have in the NFL for a long career. Totally. And and I think the I think the place that the Seahawks are deepest overall is the secondary. And yeah, without question. I think there's only one other position you could even argue. Defensive what? line, like edge rusher or no, no way. I mean, look, they've Running got back? even else? no. They've invested a lot in those positions. Wide receiver is the only other position you could argue, but that's only the top three. Yeah, I don't. Well, it's pretty. Oh, you have a different list of okay. four than I have. Hold, hold on. Okay. Zach Charbonnet. Maybe you have a different order. I mean, I'm doing it in order of when they stood out during I the see. game. Zach Charbonnet. I mean, you could feel Pete Carroll being in love with Zach Charbonnet during the game. The physicality that he plays, it, like the hits that he has as a running back. I've loved Zach Charbonnet forever, dating back to uh, Michigan days or whatever. I've always loved this dude. And then seeing him there, both the like the the impact that he had on some of those carries, I was just like, I mean, I will call it right now. I would be shocked if he is not running back one by week eight. So, oh, I, we're going to... I don't know if I'm willing to bet on that. Uh, but it's everyone a complicated. Keep... Running backs and injuries makes it a little complicated. Yeah. But just in general, even aside from the current injuries, but so I mean, Ken no Walker the mind. third is is working his way back in practice now. So I think deep down, Ken Walker the third is not a very Pete Carroll player. That's why they drafted him in the second round. Uh, I... Just, I want to remind everyone who's in ends up in Tristan's fantasy leagues of this prediction. Oh, I'm I I don't feel like he's going to be an important fantasy player. For there are so many better players to draft than Zach Charbonnet. Sure. It is not. By the way, JSN is going. He's like pick eighty in the mock draft. He's going very high, and that was one where I was like, "Wait, really? Drafting him too high right now. This is still a rookie wide receiver, people. I said it was 48th in ESPN's rankings among wide receivers. So, I mean, think about how early that is overall. There's more than 32 other players. I'm I'm pretty sure that he was drafted somewhere around in in that range. He's going quite high. Uh which I I assume that Jack like Jackson Smith and Jigbo would be a like near the bottom of your roster type pick. Just, I I don't know how he's going to get enough action to be a valuable fantasy player, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Jake Bowell. Thank you. Another player who, in the same, I mean, again, I hadn't heard of him before UW played him last year, right? And I, I he was always open. He was the most annoying player to play in one of the Huskies' two losses of the year. And granted, that was the Husky secondary, which at that time was not looking very good at all. But it was extraordinarily frustrating playing against him. And that is the exact type of player that you want on your roster, where you're just like, everything is going well. And for some reason, DTR, who I also love, uh, is finding him wide open on these plays. I can't stand this dude. And... That seems to have translated again. I mean, he's playing against players who are most likely going to be released, but he's making this roster. I tweeted as much. Uh, for the record, Jackson Smith and Jigba's ADP is 107th. Okay. 
Although I don't know if I'm spec if that specifies between PPR or not. I was playing a PPR 12, 12 team PPR mock draft. <laughs> you you and Babyus Fantasy Genius were <clears throat> yeah he, he left very early. Yeah, I mean, so the kind of the biggest injury news from Thursday's game happened at the wide receiver position. Obviously, the best news is that Cade Johnson was released from the hospital the next day after being stretchered off the field at halftime. He does remain in concussion protocol, but, uh, uh, you know, no kind of uh, injuries, issues with his, uh, you know, spine or, or head or anything like that beyond the concussion. Uh, D. Eskridge also left the game early with what Pete Carroll termed a legit knee sprain, usually his term for something that will cause a player to miss time. Uh, that, of course, comes on the heels of his six-game suspension for violating the NFL's personal conduct policy. And so you had DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, obviously sitting this game out as the starters. Cody Thompson, Dariq Young were out due to injuries. And Jackson Smith and Jigba, as you said, did play, had three catches for 25 yards and really nice 15-yard catch, but a lot of opportunities for the guys trying to make this team. And Jake Bobo and Aesop Winston Jr. were the two who took advantage. Yeah, Aesop Winston Jr. Uh, Bobo had three catches for 55 yards, a 29-yard TD. Winston, three catches for 29 yards and a touchdown. Matt Landers had the other touchdown for the Seahawks, hauling in the desperation pass from Holden Ollers that he should never have thrown under any circumstances. But look, Jake Bobo was extremely productive in the mock game they played. He was extremely productive in their first preseason game. Uh, Drew Locke said that uh, players in the locker room constantly want to throw the ball to Bobo. Wow. Are just saying more Bobo. Is, is more Bobo? Catchphrase. Yeah. It, there's, there's a certain more cowbell element to it, even though Bobo does not actually rhyme with cowbell. It, it just has that feel to it somehow. I, I will say, I de this crossed my mind. This is similar to when I uh, bought tickets to the Mariners in the World Series. But <laughs> I, this crossed my mind at the end of the game, which was because, I mean, JSN looked good, but it, it wasn't. Again, it's the first preseason game. There wasn't anything where I was like, whoa. I mean, his most impressive play was jumping up to prevent a Drew Locke pass from being intercepted. Oh, he almost came down with that one. <laughs> I, I don't know about that one. After it, I was like, what if the possession receiver that the Seahawks got that's actually going to make an impact, that's going to be a big deal, was actually Jake Bobo? Let's all remain calm. I, I'm a huge Jake Bobo fan and all, but let's all remain calm. Jackson Smith and Jigba was the MVP of the Rose Bowl, right? <laughs> Jackson, Jake Bobo played well at the Rose Bowl. Jackson Smith and Jigba was the MVP of the Rose Bowl. <laughs> the, There's I, levels to again, this shit. It just, it crossed my mind. Okay. The worst thing about not having the Pac-12 is going to be just not, like, falling in love with any player who played it. Like, Aesop Winston, when I heard he went to Wazoo, I was like, I, I like that guy. You don't think we're going to fall could, in love with guys in the Big Ten? Probably not. Some random Midwestern player? Like, I just don't. Maybe we will, but I don't think it's the same. I don't think it'll be the same as being like, oh yeah, that's. I mean, maybe the. I mean, yes, there USC, will not be the same organ players. Right, there will not be the same like sense of pride about players. Yeah, they're one the of Pac ours. Big Ten is from the Pac-12. But yeah, I saw that Aesop Winston. It's one of those things where it's like you know what a real rivalry rivalry is when you see a player in the NFL and you're like, yeah, that's one of our dudes. Aesop Winston <laughs> went to Wazoo, and I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, sure. 
We're always going to claim, claim Wazoo players. Yeah. It's, same with Gardner Minshew. You see him on the sideline, you're like, oh, yeah, let's go. Uh, you, yeah, you got all to the players that I had highlighted as well. Good day for Boye Mafe. Uh, Drew Lott completed 70% of his passes for yards per attempt, but did throw an interception in addition to the one that JSN saved. Uh, also, just great to see Ben Burke-Hervin back on the field nearly two years after his ACL tear in the 2021 preseason. So, Although, frankly, not great news for Ben Burke-Hervin's chances of making the roster when Jordan Brooks was activated off the pup list on Tuesday, having passed his physical eight and a half months after tearing his ACL on New Year's Day. Brooks was asked by media about playing week one on Tuesday, said, the way I'm feeling now, I think I would. So really remarkable for someone, you know, you were kind of penciling out, penciling uh, out until mid-season. So uh, Devin Witherspoon, P. Carroll said, is still going to be a bit still with his hamstring injury. We'll see if he's back in time for the start of the regular season, but probably not for the preseason, it sounds like. Yeah, and that's a frustrating one. Obviously, would love to see him out there. Yeah, and, and he needs the reps. Well, and also, I mean, he's getting paid a lot. <laughs> it's the part part of the value that you have for a player like that is on this initial contract. So he's somebody who you kind of need when you're making that pick to contribute early on. Not necessarily the first few games of his rookie year, but he's somebody who, if we just, Pete Carroll can't be trusted. I mean, the depth you mentioned at the secondary makes it a little less urgent. Uh, do we anticipate anything different for the second preseason game? Do you think Geno Smith will see the field? Yeah, I mean, P. Carroll did say that, you know, the first game was really about the young players. So maybe, but, you know, maybe a series. Like I said, we've, since, you know, the Seahawks didn't have preseason in 2020 and then started out with a dominant win in Atlanta, it feels like, Pete's philosophy has definitely evolved on the importance of playing the starters during the preseason. Do you want to go to that game? Um, maybe. You can have you can have my tickets if you want them. Right, I we'll can't talk, go to another preseason game. I'm good. We'll, we'll talk about that one <laughs> offline. One was enough. I was fine. I don't even think any of the of the children are excited about going. Oh so, wow! Tough yeah. beam. I mean, yeah, the, I'm sure they would, but it was kind of just like. You should go. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about how bad it is. <laughs> when you know how bad it is, going. Oh, I know precisely how bad it is. The uh, Seahawks host the uh, Cowboys in the preseason, their home preseason finale. You know exactly how bad it is going to a Seahawks game in general, but <laughs> a preseason game in particular. But you should definitely take my tickets. <laughs> well, great. On that note, thanks for listening. Uh, remember, sign up for Peltoncast Fantasy Football, Peltoncast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Mm.